Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. All right, we are going to get off into uh, our fourth episode of our second semester, uh, talking more about Martin Scorsese. Uh, when we last left Marty, he had just finished Mean Streets, a um, movie that's now a, a classic in many, uh, in many people's eyes, and essentially had mounted a third his third independent film. I mean, Boxcar Bertha wasn't exactly an indie film, but it's a low budget. It's not really a studio film. Uh, but it was also an, an assignment as well. Anyway, um, Scorsese has always been a student of cinema. And, and it was when he was growing up that a lot of that, a lot of the knowledge that's continued with him throughout his life was first planted. He, he found that there were movies that he enjoyed that had some of the same names across them. And that's when he started to realize, well, there's people behind the camera that are making these movies that I enjoy, and I seem to like a lot of the movies that are made by the same people. So, for example, people like John Ford, Howard Hawks, uh, Raoul Walsh were names that he was, um, that he became aware of and, and would make films that he was attracted to or that he enjoyed. And one of the things that he found out later in life as he kind of grew up and began to become more knowledgeable about cinema was that these filmmakers were very personal filmmakers. But they had a system of working back in the old studio days where it would sort of alternate one for the studio and one for themselves. That's kind of how they went throughout their career, making films that mattered to them. And some films had a more had more emphasis on being an assignment but still meant something to them and some of them and some of their projects were films that really mattered to them and that they took on as personal endeavors so Scorsese's gotten to a point in his career now where that's what he's ready to start doing he's established himself as a young up-and-coming talented filmmaker with Mean Streets and he's ready to take on a studio assignment and that studio assignment was Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. This is a movie that has been largely forgotten, which is a little unfair because it's actually a pretty quality film from the 70s. It's basically a story of a woman who is in a troubled marriage and is trying to raise her, her son. When her husband dies... She's now free to go pursue the life that she's always wanted, and she's always wanted to be a singer, and she's always wanted to go back to her home in Monterey, California. So picking up everything she has left with her son, she hits the road from Socorro, Arizona, and takes off for Monterey one city at a time. Now, this was a project largely pushed forward by Ellen Burstyn, uh, who was a a fairly, fairly big-name actress at the time. She was looking to do a film that dealt with the feminine issues of the 70s, and she needed a good, strong, young-up-and-coming director. So she talks to Francis Ford Coppola, and Coppola says, well, I can't do it, but uh, you should look at this guy, Martin Scorsese. And she says, well, what has he done? And he said, well, he just put out this movie called Mean Streets. Why don't you watch that? And she was very impressed with Mean Streets, but she noticed that there weren't any women in it, or at least not a lot of women in it. There is one, but anyway. Um, and she's not even sure that Marty really understands women based on the movie that 
that he's put out. But she likes his work nonetheless. So she meets with Marty and asks him, what do you know about women? And he says, nothing, but I'd like to learn. I'm, I'm willing to learn. Well, she thought that's a pretty wise answer from a young man. So right there on the spot, pretty much, she hires him, gives him the script and says, here you go. Here's your Hollywood movie. Now, Marty took this on as a challenge, as an assignment. Uh, he took this on as a challenge to do a genre film. This was a star vehicle, which is not really a genre, but it sort of is. But he's also ready to kind of separate himself from where he came from. He's ready to step away from Elizabeth Street and Lower, Lower East Side Manhattan and, you know, the Italian-American sensibility that he has or that he was raised with and that he's already done in two of his first three films. He's ready to step outside of that and take on something new. And this is exactly what he's looking for. This is about as far away as you could get. It's a West Coast story or Southwest story, really. However, Marty also understood that he was going to have a difficult time approaching this movie in a way that he normally would. He he was going to have some difficulty connecting to the characters um, because, as he said, he didn't understand women. <laughs> so he does something pretty intelligent, I think, and that is he surrounds himself with collaborators. Now, remember, this is something that goes back to what he had discovered on his first movie, Who's That Knocking at My Door, was that he is limited as a person, so he needs collaboration. So what he does is he doesn't just surround himself with just any old collaborators. He specifically surrounds himself with women so that he has as many, I guess, feminine inputs as possible in the hopes that that would raise the, the overall level of the film and give it a hopefully a more feministic quality, I suppose. And I think that 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 is important to, to remember. I don't want to just repeat what I've repeated in the first class session of this semester, but collaboration is incredibly important. We are all limited in our perspectives, in our abilities, in our strengths, and we all have weaknesses, and we all have things that we bring to the table, but we also have things that we can't bring to the table. And so for most of us, really, yeah, I'm going to say for all of us, um, it is important that we bring in other people to help elevate our work because there's only so much we can do. There's only one filmmaker I can name who historically has taken almost everything upon, upon himself, and that's Robert Rodriguez. He's known for writing, producing, directing, um, being his own director of photography, his own visual effects supervisor, his own composer, um, and doing everything within his grasp all on his own. And he seems to be able to get away with it. Um, he hasn't been in the Directors Guild for a long time. Uh, he has his own production company and now his own television studio. And, and it's hard to argue with his success. Not every one of his movies are excellent, um, but he's put out some pretty quality cinema and is, is definitely regarded as one of the better filmmakers of his generation. With that said, I would say that he's a very unique talent. He is an exception to the rule. Um, he, he seems to have an incredibly innate ability as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, to be able to do a number of things well. But if you notice, he also 
still surrounds himself with collaborators. He is usually not the only producer on a film. He is usually not the only writer on one of his own films. Um, he, he worked very hard to become a good director of photography, and he wasn't even... He, he he really didn't start doing that on his own until he uh, until the advent of digital cinema when it was much easier to much much well oh easier but it was um more feasible to do that to to be a director of photography because you have a monitor right there it's not like film where you have to really make sure every single thing is exposed correctly on the set because you can't see the actual exposure until it's already been captured anyway I'm getting sidetracked. Um, the fact of the matter is we need collaborators in our work to help elevate it because even if you are as skilled as and as preternaturally gifted as a Robert Rodriguez or even a John Carpenter who I think does – who's been known to do a lot of the same things just not to the level of a Robert Rodriguez, you still need to have people around you who can bring ideas and skills to the table that you may not have. Anyway, enough about that. So Marty takes on this this uh, this assignment, this studio assignment, and he brings in kind of a a different style. Not only does he push himself content wise, but he's also pushing himself stylistically and aesthetically. He sort of uses this hybrid documentary slash pre planned style of shooting because one of the things he starts doing is storyboarding less and less. You remember on um, on his second film, Boxcar Bertha, he storyboarded every single shot. Even if it was two people talking, he had storyboards for every single shot. And now he's starting to storyboard less and less, and the storyboards are more like sketches instead of like real storyboards. They're just sort of impressions of what the frame should look like. And he's starting to be able to communicate a sense of the coverage without being explicit about it. And then there's the camera movement. See, the camera moves a lot in this movie, but it's not necessarily by design. It's almost more by necessity because they were shooting in a lot of, um, in a lot of practical locations, actual locations. These weren't sets that were built. They were shooting in real environments, much as he always had up to this point. And one of the things you will immediately notice the minute you step into a real place and start putting in a camera and actors and lighting equipment and sound equipment and everything else, big rooms get small quickly and small rooms get very small. So he didn't always have the option to put the camera on a dolly and move with the actors. So instead he just opts to shoot it on 16 millimeter, which would be a documentary format, go handheld, which is a documentary convention, but still the shots are planned in a way that he's going to get the coverage he needs so he can cut the movie the way he needs to. So in this movie, you have a little bit of, you have this interesting blend of the circumstances dictating the style instead of the other way around and sort of a flexibility in the style so that no matter what, Marty's always going to get the shots that he needs. And the other advantage of that 16 millimeter, see, what happens is... um Normal movies are shot on 35 millimeter, and most sensors for any decent digital camera anymore is a 35 millimeter-ish sensor. 16 millimeter is, as you can tell by the name, 
a little less than half the size. And the smaller, the smaller the actual negative is, I'll put it that way, whether it's a sensor or, or an actual film stock, the more depth of field you have because more light is being focused onto a small area. Um, it's the same, it, it, it's effectively the same principle as, as closing down the iris of a lens. So as you go from wide open on the iris, which would be um, an f1.4 if you're using cine lens as a, a t1.4, and closing it all the way down to a 22, if you were to actually look into the lens, you'd see the iris squeeze down to a pinhole. Well, the more that iris closes down, the smaller the smaller the iris, the less light that's being allowed through at one moment, the more depth of field you get because that light is being focused down to a smaller point. And that's really all capturing an image is. It's just the focusing of light reflecting off of objects around you onto, onto some format that, that then turns into an image. That's a little scientific. But basically, basically what I'm telling you is 16 millimeter gives you more depth of field. So you have more ratio of stuff in focus to out of focus. So that handheld doesn't have to be quite as accurate in terms of focus. The actors don't have to hit their marks exactly in terms of focus. The camera operator doesn't have to hit his marks exactly in terms of focus. So it gives you more flexibility as well, which can be nice if you're trying to shoot quick and fast or trying to be flexible and just make sure you have the shot and you can see what's going on in the shot. But let's talk about the camera movement. This, this, this handheld that was driven by necessity, not necessarily by design. See, Scorsese was able to utilize it in a way that helped tell the story visually. He was able to turn what could have been a negative into a positive. The camera movement he utilized to show states of confusion in the characters. It was designed, not designed, but it was utilized in a way that would communicate basically emotional unrest in the characters. So as the camera moves, it should be reflecting the state of mind as the characters, or as it shakes, or as that handheld look is going on. That reflects what's going on in the characters' minds, what's going on in their, in their emotions. And then he would not move the camera and put it on a tripod for scenes of stability. So that's the visual storytelling of his, uh, of his first directorial assignment, studio assignment, real studio assignment. Boxcar Bertha could probably be considered that, but it's a Corman film. It's not really the same ballpark. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is, uh, is writing and the script. So when Marty gets this script, they shoot a lot of stuff that's in the script, but they also cut a lot of stuff that's from the script and decide not to shoot it because there was a lot of character development stuff, especially in the first half or so of the script, that they realized they just didn't need. The character was established. You don't need to repeat the same note over and over and over again. Some films need a longer introduction. Some films don't. The problem is, is all that character development, all that setting up in the first part of the movie will only carry you so far in terms of interest from your audience. Because those character development scenes, nothing's really happening. The story isn't going anywhere. I actually just watched a couple of uh, 
of um, independent films over the weekend that probably could have used some of this advice too. Marty says, if you can cut it in the script, cut it. If you don't need it, lose it, is basically what he's saying. And that's that's before you even step on set. You need to go over your scripts because otherwise you're going to waste a lot of time shooting something that you don't need in the end. It's be- You are much better off cutting it in the script than you are leaving it on the page. That being said, they actually didn't cut enough out of the script. Their rough cut was three hours and 16 minutes long. And as they're watching this rough cut, they realize that the movie starts not too long after uh, Alice's husband dies. And then she goes off on her own adventure. That's where the movie begins. Uh, classic story, tr- story structure would tell you the movie starts when the world of the character gets turned upside down and they now have a goal that they're going to go reach for. Well, in this movie, husband dies. She now has her freedom. Now she's going to leave Socorro, Arizona and go back home to Monterey to be a singer. Okay? World turns upside down. She has a goal. She's off and running. They realized that that was the point that the movie started. So what they had to do was trim down all of the character setup to get us to that point. And most writing people are going to, most writers are going to tell you, that that first turning point needs to happen about 20% into your story. So let's say you have a script that's 100 pages long, an hour and 40 minutes approximately is what it's going to be in movie terms or, or in, in actual runtime by the time it's shot and cut. That first turning point needs to happen by page 20 and no later. That's not a hard, fast rule, but it's a pretty good rule. If you watch a lot of movies or break down a lot of scripts or a lot of stories, you're going to find out that a lot of people stick to this and it just works. We don't need much more than 20% to establish our characters and let the movie or, and let the story unfold from there. So what they do is they cut out a lot and they get the runtime down from three hours and 16 minutes to something like an hour 40 or an hour 50. And it's a pretty solid movie. It's not great. It's not by any stretch of the imagination Marty's greatest films of that decade even, but it's a watchable movie. And it's a decent movie, and it's a movie that if you really care about about tracking Marty's career or you want to watch it just for reference, you probably should. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really a decent film. Ellen Burstyn won, won the Oscar for Best Leading Actress that year for this movie. You know, so it has some merit to it, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about music before we go. This is my last point. Up until this point, Marty has largely chosen music because it was music that he felt fit the story. And he kind of continues that pattern. In Who's That Knocking at My Door and in Mean Streets, two stories that take place in very in basically the same world. He took music from his youth, from his childhood. Uh, as he says, music was everywhere in those neighborhoods. Uh, at, uh, in one apartment, you could hear opera, and down the hall, you could hear rock and roll. And over across the street, there might be um, a, a Frank Sinatra tune or a Tony Bennett song, you know. But there was this wide ranging music that he grew up with, and so he puts that in the films. In this movie, he decides to focus all of his musical choices around Alice's kid and what he would have listened to. Which is an interesting choice because he's not really the main character. 
But the way the character's written, he sort of drives the music because he's interested in music. He's listening to records. He's doing other things. So story-wise, it makes sense that he would kind of pick the music of their lives and therefore would kind of help drive the, the overall musical choices for the film. Anyway, that's all I've got. Uh, just that quick note. Um, yeah, if you haven't watched it, go find Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. It's a really good film. In the meantime, uh, be prepared. In two weeks, we'll, we'll uh, rally up. We'll come back for class. We'll talk about Taxi Driver. We'll move on to New York, New York. And then we will do Raging Bull. So we have uh, two big um, obligatory movies that I know you guys are looking forward to. And we have another one that I think we really need to talk about because it was a massive failure and we need to talk about why so that we all can learn from mistakes Marty made so that hopefully we don't make the same mistakes. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, that's all for class this week. Come back in in two weeks. We'll talk about Taxi Driver. In the meantime, reach out to me uh, at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com or the Facebook page. Uh, Hitchcock University or Twitter at Hitchcock underscore U as in university. Also give us a like, a rating, a review, whatever on iTunes, podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, wherever it is you listen to the show. Uh, Thanks again for listening. I will talk to you in two weeks.